This is Dale Jr., and you're listening to Dirty Mo' Radio. I don't know if you remember, but being the, sitting in the outfield at the Braves World Series game, and you're on the phone with your dad, and you handed me the phone, it's like, I'm at a World Series game. And it was your dad, and of course, you know him. So what, are you going to do this damn deal or not? You know, he, he was not very subtle. Welcome to Fast Lane Family with Kelly Earnhardt Miller. Welcome to Fast Lane Family, presented by Charlie Soap. Well, Amanda, the bad news is the discount on the sampler pack is over. Ended at the end of the month. The yeah. good news is you can still go to charliesoap.com and buy some product. I mean, you should, <laughs> I don't know if there is a, such a thing as spring cleaning and fall cleaning. I know spring cleaning is, but maybe I'm the only OCD person that probably does fall cleaning too. So you just do this is your chance. 24-hour cleaning. <laughs> yeah. Right? What I mean, everybody's got to do laundry every day. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. So there's lots of cleaning to be done. Hopefully, you were able to take advantage of the uh, the discount on the sampler pack that we offer to all the listeners in August. Maybe it'll come back. We'll see. But uh, meanwhile, you can still go to charliesoap.com and check out all of the products that they offer. There's a store banner up at the top of the page and, and on the main page, and you can click and, and go through there and purchase. Today in studio, I have Larry McReynolds. How are you today, Larry? Doing good, doing good. good. Thank uh, you for joining us. No, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked. I'm excited about being here. Seems like we asked on a good week. You were just talking about how light your week is. So. <laughs> yeah, it's very unusual that I have anything remotely close to a, a light week, but, of course, ESPN doing the races now. Normally, I'm at the track every week doing a lot of stuff for Fox Sports 1, Fox Sports 2, whether it's practice or qualifying shows. But this week, ESPN's covering everything at Richmond, so I don't have to go to Richmond. I'd kind of like to be there just because of what's going to unfold, I think, on Saturday night. But uh, I'll be in a studio getting ready for, for the race day show and in victory lane after the race. So you will get to watch the race on TV. So that adds a whole new element for you to catch it like I do every weekend as <laughs> I don't get there. And then you're preparing for Victory Lane after the race? So yeah, during the race? Yeah. What what we'll do, we're on actually on Fox Sports 2 with the race day pre-race show this week because of it being a Saturday race. And we're on there, I think it's from 6 to 7 Eastern time. I'll have to be down there about 2 or 2.30 for production meetings and rehearsal. We come on the air. And then we'll pretty much go into another part of the studio and watch the race. Myself, John Roberts, Kenny Wallace. Uh, with Kenny, you do a lot more watching than you do listening. But uh, we'll uh, we'll watch the race, and then as soon as the race is over, we'll start laying the Victory Lane show to take. Okay. Yeah, we had Kenny on a couple of weeks ago. You can imagine we were like, okay, we'll have to have part two. We'll have to have part two. <laughs> we love going to him whenever we fun. need rain field, no question. <laughs> it, we could have talked all day. So so let's go back. Uh, 39-year career for you in the sport. Let's go back to, you know, how it started. It, it's an interesting story, Kelly, because I was an only child, grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, and I, I came from no racing background whatsoever. Uh, I had an uncle that did a little bit of dirt track racing there in around Birmingham back in the day, but but never really watched racing. And the local short track, which was BR, I think your dad maybe came there and raced a couple of times, uh, they had the, the, the races every Friday night. Well, my grandfather, my mom's dad, was a bit of a race fan, and my mom's sister, which was more like a, a sister to me because she was only 10 years older than I was. She was uh, much younger than my mom and the rest of her sisters. She was a race fan, so the three of us every Friday night We'd walk down to the racetrack because it was only about a 10 or 15-minute walk, and we'd go to the to the short track races there every Friday night. And then my aunt got married, and her husband was a bit of a race fan, so all four of us, every Friday night, we'd go to the races. And so this was somewhere around, I want to say, 74 or 75. 
they started a new division. Uh, it was called a street stock hobby division. It was as stock of a race car as you could possibly think about. You take the seats out, the windows out, put a few roll bars in it, put the fuel tank up in the trunk, paint a number on it, you had a race car. And my aunt actually was a little bit of a hot rodder, so she jokingly, I think, told her husband that I could do that. I'd like to do that. He And he kind of jokingly back said, okay, go find you some sponsors, and we'll build you one. You had to find sponsors back then, too. You still had to find <laughs> sponsors. So, you know, I don't think anyone ever thought anything. It was just a passing conversation. Well, she called his bluff, and she went out and found more sponsors than we could just about put on the side of that race car. I'm sure a lot to do with being a female in a male, male sport. And so, voila, my racing career was up and going in the basement of my aunt and uncle's home, building her a street stock hobby car. My goodness. And then from there, it just kept progressing. Yeah, as you know, being around the sport your entire life, I, I tell people all the time, racing is, a, is a, a disease. It gets in your bloodstream, and there's no getting it out. My aunt did not race with a lot of success, but I had the bug, and I had the bug hard. And I started working for some late model racers. Mike Alexander drove the car. Dave Mater III drove the car there out of a team out of Birmingham. Still doing it on a total volunteer basis, even after I graduated from high school. And uh, I, I, would, I worked in a, I, I like to call it an auto recycling center. <laughs> the, the correct term's a junkyard. I worked in a junkyard after I graduated from high school. And I'd work in that junkyard Monday through Thursday or Monday through Friday, and it was not unusual on two or three nights a week to leave that junkyard, go through a drive-thru, go straight to that race shop, work all night long, quit just in time enough to get a shower, and go to work the next day. I'd do that two or three nights a week. And finally, I said, you know, I don't know if I'm going to live to see the age of 25 if I keep this pace up. So right about 1980, I decided, you know, I want to figure out how to pursue this as a career, but I don't think it's going to happen in Birmingham, Alabama. I'm going to have to somehow get to the Carolinas. And it's it's amazing how fate works out because working in that junkyard, I'd actually worked my way up through the junkyard by working on the counter. I was no longer working the, the yard pulling parts. And we had a guy that drove the forklift, and he had the worst habit in the world. When he'd pull the forklift up behind the building, he'd leave the forks up. And we stayed on him all the time. Somebody's going to bust their head wide open. Well, somewhere mid-late July of 1980, I bailed out the back door of that shop, and those forks were about head high, and I centered one of those forks. Mm. Had to go to the hospital, had 11, 12, 13 stitches, and had to kind of lay low for about a week because I was right on the verge of having a concussion. Well, I'm sitting at home, and I have read every magazine and watched every soap opera you could watch. <laughs> and NASCAR used to put a little newsletter out that would come out either twice a month or maybe once a month. And on the back pack page of the newsletter was the classifieds. And it's where people would be selling race cars or haulers or engines. But the last little ad that I was reading this particular day said, New Winston Cup team forming in Greenville, South Carolina, looking for mechanics and fabricators, and it gave a number. So I called the number and, and actually talked to a lady. It was, it was the gentleman that was starting the team. It was his daughter. And I talked to her for about 15 or 20 minutes. And ironically, she knew who I was because they had run a lot of late model races around the country. And we would show up and run some of the same races. And so we talked 15 or 20 minutes. And I hung up the phone. And I felt like I'm probably one of about 10 million people that's <laughs> called them about a job. 
I'll never hear anything out of them again. And of course, nobody had cell phones or mobile phones back then. And about a week later, I got home from work, and my mom said, there's a lady that's called you from Greenville, South Carolina twice, and she's left the number and really wants you to call her. So I called her back, and, and we talked, and she said, uh, you know, we we know what your past is, and we've watched you around the racetrack, and very flattered that you're even interested in coming to work. She said, we're actually coming to Birmingham on Labor Day to run the big Labor Day race with our driver, Don Sprouse, and we want to know if you'd entertain going back to Greenville with us for a few weeks. Give us a try. We'll give you a try, and we'll see where it goes. So they came to run the race. When their hauler left to go back to Greenville, I crawled up in the hauler with a couple of suitcases, and back to Greenville I went. <laughs> I worked for three or four weeks, and they, they called me in the office and said, you know, there's no question. We'd love for you to go to work for us. And so I flew back home and rented a U-Haul and hooked it behind my little 71 green Pinto. Green does not even describe how green this car was. And when I hooked the U-Haul behind it, the bumper started dragging the ground before I even put anything in it. But I loaded all my stuff in it. And my mom and dad told me, said, this is the craziest thing we've ever seen anybody do. You'll be back in six months. You'll be hungry and you'll be broke. <laughs> we'll feed you, but we're not going to bail you out of debt. And I said, as much as I respect anything and everything y'all have ever told me, you're probably right, but I got to go but try it. And um, 34 years later, I'm still up here in the Carolinas, still kicking. <laughs> Just visiting back in Birmingham. Just go back to Birmingham <laughs> to visit every once in a while. So what was your um, breakout position or team or whatever that kind of really set your sails? Yeah, Kelly, uh, the first few years that I worked in the sport, I was beginning to believe that my mom and dad was truly right, that this is the craziest thing I'd ever done because I was seeing a pattern. I'd go to work for a race team, and within six to eight months, they'd close the doors because of lack of funding. I, I mean, I worked for, for Rogers Racing that I first went to work for a year and a half. They closed the doors. I went to work for Mark Martin. Actually, his rookie season at the end of 82, they closed the doors. So there was a pattern developing here. But I actually went to work for Bobby Hawkins, uh, in, in late 1983, and Bobby Hawkins actually owned the car that David Pearson was driving on a very limited schedule. He, they only ran 10 or 12 races a year. So I went to work for Bobby late summer, early fall of 83, and I worked there in 83 and 84 and with Pearson driving the car. And it was a great job for me because Linda and I had just become engaged. We were getting married in October of 83, so... Here's a, a guy that's about to get married and newly wed, and we're running a limited schedule, 10 or 12 races. It's, it's like almost a perfect world, and I'm getting to work with David Pearson. So David left at the end of 85, and I was just working on the car. I drove the truck. I did tires. There were only four of us, but I was the only one working on the car that last name was not Pearson. We were doing it out of David's shop, and it was David and Larry and Eddie and, and Ricky and myself. Well, at the end of the 84 season, David knew he was only going to race one more year. And I think he wanted to go drive for a more prominent team than the team we had there out of their shop. So he took the Chattanooga Chew sponsorship to Hall Sellington. And that kind of left me working for Bobby, but kind of left me not knowing where we were at. So I moved all of Bobby's stuff back to Traveler's Rest, South Carolina, just outside of Greenville. And Bobby told me, he said, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know where we're going to go. But he said, you've got a job. He said, you just get my stuff in order, and we'll figure out what we're going to do. Well, I did about everything you could do for three or four months. And finally, I went to Bobby, and I said, look, Bobby, I, I appreciate you keeping me working, but I want to race. What are we going to do? He said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, i tell you what I'd, I'd like to do. I said, maybe it's a little far-fetched. I said, we got probably one of the best short track drivers 
that there is living right here in Greenville, Butch Lindley. I said, why don't we build a really super-duper throw-down short-track Winston Cup car, and let's maybe pick Martinsville, Wilkesboro, maybe Bristol, and let's run it. Bobby said, call Butch, let's put it together. So I called Butch, and, and he was more than interested and hired a couple of guys, and we built this the, the lightest short-track car we could build. Well, this is kind of a sad story because – we were going to go run North Wilkesboro. Wilkesboro and Martinsville were back-to-back -back that year. And we were going to run Wilkesboro. If everything went well at Wilkesboro, we were going to go run Martinsville. And we were going to go test Wilkesboro. We were actually building the car, though, down at Mike Laughlin, the chassis builder's shop in Simpsonville, South Carolina. And I called Butch, and we were about a week and a half or two weeks out from going to the test. I said, Butch, I need you to come down here. I need to fit the seat, the pedals, get all your, your cocoon in order for you. He said, look, he said, this was like maybe on Tuesday. He said, can I come by there on Thursday? Joan uh, and I are driving down to Sarasota, Florida. I'm running a late model race down there this weekend at DeSoto Speedway. And he said, that's right on my way. I'll come by first thing Thursday morning. I said, absolutely. So he came by. We fitted him all to the seat, and he left. And on Saturday night, I got the call that, that he had crashed at that speedway and was, was pretty much in a in a coma. And so out of respect to Butch, we, we didn't go to Wilkesboro, but we didn't know what we were going to do. So Bobby said, look, we've got this car. What, what, what do we need to do? And I said, well, the only option I know, we can't run this car anywhere but a short track. I said, Morgan Shepard's not doing anything. I said, why don't we call Morgan and see if we can go to Martinsville? So I called Morgan, got in touch with him. He said, man, I'd love to. So we take this little team with this one car, no backup car. We didn't have a backup engine. Goodness. And we go to Martinsville with Morgan. Uh, we qualified third, and we were running second about 200 laps in the race and cut our left rear tire down, and that thing hit the inside wall. And because of it being a very light car, <laughs> that thing folded like an accordion. It destroyed that race car. So we haul what's left back to, to Greenville. And a couple of weeks go by, and it's like, Bobby, what do you want to do now? He said, what do you want to do? I said, well, we got Morgan. Morgan doesn't have a ride. He's open to do anything. I said, why don't we spend the summer and let's build a speedway car? And, and not, not a super speedway, but a Charlotte, Atlanta, Darlington car. And let's pick a few races and go run it. He said, let's do it. So we built this car over the summer months, and we go to Darlington with Morgan. Run really good, but we lose an engine. We go to Charlotte. We finish eighth. But the last race we were going to run, and this is where my the break comes in that you asked me about <laughs> about 10 minutes ago. So before we go to Atlanta, we had a guy that was working with Bobby in this race team by the name of Clyde Brookshire. And Clyde was in really tight with the people with R.J. Reynolds. And R.J. Reynolds had contacted Clyde to find out what we were going to do in 1986 because they were real close with Kenny Bernstein, the drag racer. Kenny was wanting to come to Winston Cup Racing. He had a sponsor with Quaker State. He already had a driver sign with Joe Ruttman, and he just needed a place to carry the sponsor and the driver. So Clyde worked to try to draw Bobby and Kenny together to form a partnership. And we actually went to Atlanta under the name of King Hawkins Racing. Kenny was already half owner when we went to Atlanta, and we ran fifth at Atlanta that race. But it didn't take long for all parties involved to realize that, that Kenny was a great businessman and Bobby was a great businessman, but they, they were like oil and water. They, had, <laughs> they didn't agree that the sky was blue. <laughs> Both of them great businessmen, right. but it just wasn't going to work. So Kenny actually bought Bobby out. Well, the one thing that Bobby put in the contract is no matter what, 
He had to keep Larry McReynolds employed for a full year, which was very flattering and overwhelming. So I'm working with Kenny, and we're, we're, we're getting people hired. We're getting cars built. But Kenny also put on my shoulders, he said, you got to help us find the crew chief. I said, I'll do all I can. And I worked as hard as you can work trying to hire a crew chief. I talked to Dale Emmon. He wanted a top crew chief. I talked to Dale Emmon. I talked to Harry Hyde. I talked to Herb Nab. Thought we had Gary Nelson hired. But the one snag, we were in Greenville, South Carolina. And no one was, A, going to move to Greenville, and they were not going to commute that 180 miles round trip every day. So we were two weeks away from going to test at Daytona in mid-January. Had the cars built, had the people hired, had to, had to shop all together. I mean, we had worked night and day. And Kenny came to town, him and, and John Dangler, his associate. And he wanted an update on everything. I said, Kenny, I think we're in good shape with everything. I said, I have no idea what to do on this crew chief job. I said, I have tried everybody I know to try. He said, I think there's a reason we couldn't find a crew chief. And I said, would you mind filling me in? Because I about drove myself nuts trying to hire. He said, I've got the right guy right here. And I said, where? You're looking around. <laughs> so he said, you're the guy. He said, I've watched you for the last three months. You have, you have single-handedly built this race team. You've hired the people. You've built the cars. You can do this. I said, boy, you're seeing something I don't see. I said, the closest I've ever been to Victory Lane is walking by it on Pitt Road. And so, lo and behold, in my book, no matter where I go or what I do, I will always be indebted to Kenny because I felt like he walked out to the end of the thinnest branch on the tree by taking a top race team of the top sponsor and taking a guy very young that only had five years of experience and making him the crew chief. Wow. That is an awesome story. Long story. But and you never, <laughs> never. And you thought Kenny Wallace was long-winded. Right. You never <laughs> once considered yourself during that process. You never thought it could be me or put yourself up there. And no, like I was wow. excited about hiring someone like Dale Inman or Gary Nelson because I felt like, wow, that that what an education I'll be able to from. get. It never once crossed my mind that I was the guy to be the crew chief for that team just simply from an experience level and no success, essentially. Yeah. Wow. And from there, you went on to crew chief the likes of Davey Allison and Ernie Irvin and my dad yep. and Mike Skinner. Yeah, there, there's no question. And that was – I've had to make so many tough decisions because I, I get attached to people. <laughs> and one of the hardest things I had to do was was leave Kenny Bernstein at the beginning of the 91 season. But I just felt like that – that team was only going to be a team that was going to win one or two races a year, and it was never going to be a championship contender. We just never could put everything together. Either it was the manufacturer or the engine or the arrow or, or just never could put all all the blocks together. And Robert Yates and Davey Allison were working me over hard about coming over there. I mean, Davey told me many times, he said, Larry, with the horsepower we've got, if you'll just come over here and help me get this thing halfway pointed straight, we will wear them out. And it was hard because I felt like that 26 car was my baby. I built it from the, the very beginning, before the beginning, but there's no question that was a career-making move when I went to Robert Yates Racing. Did you have any ties to, to Davey and them from being from Birmingham? or I really didn't, really. Kelly. I mean, a lot of people speculated that, but but I left Birmingham really just about the time that that Davey was, was getting started, even just running late models. Now, a little yeah. bit of a funny sidebar story. The only one of the Allisons I really knew was Donnie Allison. And before I took the job, 
to go to Greenville, South Carolina. Even though I knew it's what I was going to do, I was just looking for someone to tell me this is good. Go do it. So I, I went out to Donnie's late model shop and I chased him around a late model car for about two hours. And I told him what I was going to do. And you know Donnie. He, he gets about <laughs> this close to your face, nose to nose, when he talks to you. And puts his finger in your chest. And he said, you know what? That's what you need to do. But he said, I'm going to tell you one thing. That checkered flag that y'all won a couple of weeks ago out there at BR with Mike Alexander, you better go get that checkered flag because it's going to be a long damn time before you see another one. Boy, was he ever so right. Because it took all the way to 1988 at Watkins Glen to get that first checkered flag in cup. That's what I was just getting ready to ask you is how, how long did it take you? <laughs> it, it took eight long years, long, miserable years to get there. Well, let's fast forward to working with my dad. And I was looking back at some stories and whatnot. And if anybody has the uh, insight on working for an Earnhardt, obviously you do. And, and the all that goes into working with the, that caliber of a driver and just the namesake itself. We have went through the same thing with Dell Jr. and the various crew chiefs. And I know you have a lot of uh, input, you know, in your commentary about that. You spent, you know, a year and a half or so with my dad and got a lot of flack. I mean, you guys went through a, a winless season yeah. there in 97. There's a reason I look this way. <laughs> everybody was ready to just kick you to the curb. Oh, it, it uh, <laughs> must have been a rough year. <laughs> you know, Kelly, it, it's, it was a rough year and a half. And I, I have never second-guessed myself so hard so long because I felt like of all the success I had had at Robert Yates races and the races that we had won there, that if I could just take half of that and put that and mix that with the greatest race car driver that ever gripped a stock car steering wheel, it wasn't a matter could we win his eighth championship. It was could we win eight, nine, and ten, and eleven. I, I just, I, you know, no one's expectations were any higher than your dad and mine because of, of obviously his success, but then the success and what I could bring to that. And it was so flattering to know, I, I don't know if you remember, but being sitting in the outfield at the Braves World Series game, and you're on the phone with your dad, and you handed me the phone, it's like, <laughs> I'm at a World Series game. And it was your dad, and of course, you know him, are you going to come do this deal or not? And, and then we go to Japan, and, and he, he he walks right over to the 28 car and spins me around, so what, are you going to do this damn deal or not? You know, he, he was not very subtle, no. <laughs> but that was so flattering that Dale Earnhardt, seven-time champion wanted me that bad to come over there and I had definitely reached a point at Robert Yates racing where I was ready for a change you know we started the second team at Robert Yates in 1996 with Dale Jarrett the 88 car and it's it was nobody's fault but my own but but Robert put the challenge on me when he decided to do the second team he said you've got to help me put this deal together so it's almost like in 1996, I still was playing the role of the crew chief of the 28 and with a driver that was just coming back after being injured with Ernie Irvin. And I was also trying to build this second team. I was trying to keep the two teams connected because Robert challenged me every day to make these two teams work together. And by the end of 96, I was worn out physically and mentally. I mean, I felt like a guy that had two extension cords trying to keep them plugged together, and I almost didn't have enough cord to do it, and I just was wore out. And about the time I'm feeling this, I get word through the garage area that Richard Childress and Dale Earnhardt are interested in me talking to me about coming over there. So it was so overwhelming and flattering for, for me 
to go over there. And I, I go back to that 97-500. You know, we had had a very, my first race with Dale, I knew how bad he wanted to run the, win the 500. You know, he, he didn't promote it, but I knew it. I mean, I remember him telling me right before they fired engines for that 97-500, you know how he'd take your collar and pull you inside yes. the car? He said, if you'll just get me near the front bumper, the cat leading this thing at the end of the race, I will take his good day and make it go bad. I said, I get it, boss. I know where you're coming from. Been a bridesmaid too long. Oh, and, and we had such an up and down day, and it was mainly on pit road. We Our pit stops were good. Our pit stops were bad. But because of your dad's talent that he had running places like Daytona, I looked up with 20 to go, and we're leading the race with no more pit stop to make. 15 to go, I looked at Richard, and I said, what do you think? He went, been here way too many times before. With about nine to go, I figured out what he was talking about because your dad was barrel rolling down the back straightaway where Gordon had got into his left rear quarter panel. So, yeah, to go winless in 1997, it was a tough year. It was a tough year on all of us, a tough year on your dad. Uh, I was being accused of sabotaging yeah. <laughs> your dad's career. I was being accused of still being paid by Ford to come sabotage the Chevrolet camp. I couldn't even leave the racetrack with a good wrenched uniform. I thought I was going to have to hire a bodyguard to protect me. But you know what? No matter what, and I say this, I, I say it every day that I'm asked about it, no matter what happened in 1997, to be able to accomplish what we did at the beginning of 1998, I'll treasure it for the rest of my it life. It. It, you know, it was my second Daytona 500 win, winning it in 92 with Davey. And those two 500 trophies sit in my office, and I walk by every single day and grin at them. Because, yeah, because they're the Daytona 500, but mainly because of the two guys that I was able to win it with. Davy Allison and Dale Earnhardt, and it was their only Daytona 500 win. So that made that that erased all of 1997 right there. And you know there were so many things said about your dad and I that just it hurt my feelings so bad that we didn't get along, that we fussed, we fought, and that was so untrue. And you know the one comfort level that I have, Kelly, and I don't mind sharing this with you, is. In May of 2000, I was already working with Mike Skinner. But as as you know, Taylor Nicole and my oldest daughter, Brooke, went to the yep. same school. Yep. They went to Cannon. And it was, it was May of 2000 during the Charlotte week, and it was on Friday afternoon. And there was no activity at the track on Friday, just like now. And the girls had been on a field trip. And the bus was about two hours late getting back. Linda called me, said, are you already there? I said, yeah, I'm sitting here in the parking lot. She said, well, the bus is going to be two hours late. I said, well, I'm not coming home. I'll just wait. And lo and behold, I looked about three cars over, and your dad was sitting there in his pickup truck. And about the time I looked and saw him, he saw me, and, of course, he waved me over there. And we sat in that truck, and we talked for the entire two hours. And it 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 gave me a little bit of peace, that conversation we had. We talked about Charlotte. We talked about qualifying the night before. But the one thing he said to me, he said, you know what, Larry, you and I never had a fair chance with each other. He said, I was hurting so bad in 1997 and 1998 until finally Dr. Branch and, and Teresa and everybody finally convinced me to have that surgery. And, and I said, Dale, it, it kind of makes sense a little bit. I said, because I don't know how many times when I would ask you about the race car, your comment was, I'm just not comfortable. It wasn't that it was tight. Right. It wasn't that it was loose. I'm just not comfortable. He said, you know what? I wasn't comfortable. I couldn't feel the race car. He said, I've had that surgery. And he said, I am ready to go. And he said, I just, 
I regret so much that you and I never got that real shot together with me being 100%. Not that it made me feel any better, that, that because I know when Richard came to me and said, I'm going to swap you and Kevin Hamlin, I was devastated. I said, Richard, I didn't come up here to work for the yellow and blue right. 31. I came up here to work with Dale and that black three. He said, I know you did, but it's not working. And he said, Richard told me, and, and I get tickled, he said, Best I can tell you, you intimidated the intimidator. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I, I'll always treasure that year and a half that your dad and I have together. But, but more than anything, because I tell people all the time in Victory Lane that day, the thing that meant the most to me, and, and it's a snapshot of time that I will never lose the the image. Things had kind of settled down, and everyone was still in Victory Lane, and I kind of took a step back and just watched your dad. And I watched Richard Childress, and it was almost like watching kids open their presents on Christmas morning, and, I, and it just was so fulfilling. Yeah, it meant a lot to me to, to win another 500, but to watch how much it meant to them to know how long both of them had been trying. I mean, Richard, for so many years as yeah. a driver and an owner, and then, of course, your dad for 20 years, uh, it was a it was a snapshot that I'll never ever forget that image. Yeah, I think you know just the lineup there on pit road and all the things that get replayed. You know, even today, that was uh, just a really special win. I think just in the history of NASCAR period, it took a long no, time no, for him to no do question. It. <laughs> and to be on the 50th anniversary of NASCAR and your dad's 20th try, just yeah, uh, yeah the stars a lot lined, of things up. Were lined up. You know, people <laughs> look at me today still, and and they'll say we want to thank you for for giving Dale Earnhardt that Daytona 500 win. And that's a very flattering comment. I just go, wait a minute. I just happened to be the guy that was in place, but he didn't hit a seagull. When the engine didn't blow up, he didn't run out of fuel. He didn't have a flat yep. tire on the last lap. I just happened to be that guy in place when it all came together. Yep, for sure. I read the story uh, in 2000 when you left RCR to go broadcasting. You got the opportunity through Fox at the time. Well, it was Fox at the time, I guess, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, yep. And and been with them since 2001. I just was sitting there thinking, I did not realize it's been that long. 14 years yes. going on 15 Yeah. One of the things that uh, I've talked to Wendy Venturini and, and obviously Kenny is just about the preparation that goes into what you guys do and, and the time that you spend doing that. What's your week like and, and how do you prepare for that? It's a great question, and I think people probably are a little surprised um, when, I, when I tell them what my week is like. I almost approach the broadcasting a lot like I did as as a crew chief. You know, there's there's no telling how many hours of preparation I do each week from from reading press releases and reading driver quotes and I even try to go to race shops periodically just just to try to stay in touch with this sport because as you know, our sport it doesn't change from year to year. It changes from week to week, almost from day to day. And I just feel like if you don't really keep your hand in it that um you're going to lose touch in a hurry. It's not like stick and ball sports. And, you know, Tuesdays are are full of conference calls, you know, two or three different conference calls. I try to spend all day Wednesday doing a lot of prep work, travel on Thursday. Normally we're doing practice and qualifying shows on Friday, practice shows on Saturday, the race on Sunday, travel home, and the whole vicious cycle just starts, starts again. again. I you know, really, my schedule is is probably more hectic now than when I was a crew chief because when I was a crew chief, I was just focused on one thing, 24-7, trying to make that race car as good as I could make it. But today, things are kind of all over the place. You know, I got opportunities, uh, worked with your producer, Amanda Troutman, for a number of years on a radio show on MRN Radio, NASCAR Performance, and it's just 
it, it's led it's it's led to a lot of other things. I do a lot of keynote speeches and and I enjoy doing those. So there's no question. Uh, every week is a little bit different, but I do. There's no telling how many hours I truly spend before I even get to the racetrack trying to get prepared for the upcoming race weekend. Didn't I read too that did you just sign on to do a book or, or I something did. of that nature? I did. Yeah. I uh, I did two books. Uh, back in the early 2000s, uh, I did one called Larry McReynolds, the the big picture, and it was uh, it wasn't really an autobiography, but it was um, it was more my days with the 28 and with the three, and then the transition to the broadcast booth. And then a couple of years after that, the same publishing company uh, asked me to do a a nut and bolt book. It's more of a of a tech book to, that was kind of written to help the the local Saturday night short track racer just basics about racing and then this production or this uh publishing company out of Louisiana contacted me a few months ago um and it's it's going to be more about my trials and tribulations because when you think about it uh going through the Butch Lindley deal that I talked about and going through losing Davy Allison in 1993 and then we're back on top of things with the 28 car, and then Ernie hits the wall, and he's injured. And, and, in a, and of course, the first broadcast of NASCAR on Fox with, with your dad being killed. I, I, that's what this book really is meant to focus on is throughout my career uh, of dealing with the trials and tribulations that, uh, that this sport's thrown me in many ways. <laughs> Yeah, no shortage of those for sure. What do you think is, um, especially with the changes coming up uh, with the TV and them putting their teams together for the commentating and all, what is, what's the perfect commentator for you, other than yourself? Because <laughs> oh, obviously God. you think you're the best. You know, well, <laughs> but, you know, but what do you think it takes? I mean, you have this experience as a crew chief. You have guys on there that have driven. You, you know, you've, you've got the gamut of the experience. You, you know, I obviously love the team that, that – that Fox assembled 14 years ago. When you when you look at our team, we've had little to no changes. At, at the end of 06, when the new contract that we're in right now that ends this year, when it when it made the transition, Jeannie Zelasco, who was doing pit road, uh, she moved on to start doing baseball and, and things in L.A. where she was from, and Chris Devoto replaced her. And other than that change, we have had no changes, not in the studio, not in the booth, not on pit road for 14 years. But I, when I look at our booth, uh, I feel like we, we have a good balance. Mike Joy, I know I'm prejudiced, yes. but he's the best play-by-play guy in all of sports, <laughs> not just motorsports. He is the absolute man. He knows how much rope to give Daryl, how much rope to give me, but not enough we can hang ourselves because we could truly do that really, really easily. But he, he, he doesn't try to be an analyst. I do hear a lot of play-by-play guys that they do play-by-play, play and they try to be an analyst, too. Mike Joy never tries to be an analyst. But I feel like the balance with Daryl and I, with him being a driver and me being a crew chief, we never overstep each other's boundaries. You know, Daryl never really gets into the fact of why crew chiefs did two tires or did four tires or stayed out. I never get into the fact of a car being loose getting down in the corner, what it feels like, because I've never driven a race car. But I think the biggest thing, and I, and, and I tell a lot of groups of people when I do motivational speeches about this, when the biggest problem, you know this, being a part of JR Motorsports, is, is dealing with egos. Mm-hmm. And the more success you have, the harder those egos are to keep contained. But I think, you know, when you look at Mike Joy and Larry McReynolds and Daryl Waltrip and 
Chris Myers and Jeff Hammond, that's enough ego to fill your building and start oozing out the cracks here. But I think what we've done a really good job at, and I think it's why it works, the biggest part of our ego is let's just have a good broadcast. And if we do that, then it's all going to work out. Before we started that broadcast, that very first broadcast in 2001, we had meetings after meetings and seminars after seminars, and they crammed so many things in our head. But the three things that I picked up on that was consistent, and I still try to follow these today, is you have to tell the story. You know what? If uh, Kyle Busch drives in the back of somebody and spins them out, there's no sense in trying to tell the fan that the guy he spun out, his foot must have slipped off the throttle. Kyle Busch spun him out. And then you have to explain the why. Why did this crew chief change to? Why did he change for? And the biggest thing, they hammered this hard, and we have no problem with this one. You have to have fun. If we're not having fun, how can the viewer at home enjoy, enjoy the broadcast? We, so we have to truly have fun doing it. And I think that's, that's one reason that our broadcast team has worked for as long as it's worked. Even 14 years later, Kelly, the hardest thing to me about being a broadcaster, if you look at 18 years as a crew chief, I never needed anyone to tell me, you're doing good or you're doing bad. You had a stopwatch, you had race results, qualifying results, and at the end of each year you had points results. Pretty much self-explanatory. Yeah. As a broadcaster, you don't have that measuring stick. Uh, I know there's several times we'll go off there and I'll look at Daryl and Daryl look at me and go, I guess it'll be okay. If it wasn't, I'm sure they'll be calling from L.A. in the morning. I know they have Nelson ratings. I've never met anybody in my life that has a Nelson box on top of their television. I know when the, it's a double digit, they're really happy in L.A. But that's still, even today, 14 years later, the toughest part about being a broadcaster is not having a measuring stick about was it good or was it bad. Just signed a new two-year deal, so... I hope I'm still doing something good, so we'll see where it goes. So you signed a new two-year deal with Fox? I did, yeah. So, uh, you know, it's a, the new package is a 10-year deal, and, and I'm not sure if they'd have come at me and wanted me to do 10 years that I would have said yes. 10 years is a long time. I was going to say, surely there's got to be, you, you got to be looking to, to retire oh, at some I don't point. Know, I don't know if Linda will ever let me retire. I don't know if she can afford <laughs> for me to retire. But, uh, you know. She's I, got I, her routine on the weekends. Exactly. She probably don't want you interrupting it. <laughs> no, I, I don't know how long. I, we've been married going on 31 years, but I think it's been based off me being gone a lot. But, uh I think I like the fact that they've given me a two-year deal with a two-year option. And, and like I told Eric Shanks, my boss at Fox, when we talked back in December, I said, you know, no matter what, I hope as long as Fox is doing NASCAR that I can still be a part of it. Maybe when the time comes that, that it's time for new blood to move into that booth, and there will become that time. I mean, 14 going on, I believe 16 years is a long time. So... Maybe when the time comes for new blood that I can still be a part of the of the NASCAR and Fox family, maybe doing studio stuff or maybe even doing nationwide or truck stuff. We'll just see where it goes. Well, I want to take a couple of minutes and talk about your family. you got three kids, Brooke, Brandon, and Kendall. Mm-hmm. And uh, Brooke is forcing her own right with her interior design business and, and Boy, making really her ways is. there. She yep. really, really is. I'm very proud of her. You know, she got her master's in interior design from Savannah College of Art and Design and and she decided about a year ago she wanted to go into business on her own. And I was a little bit skeptical, but then I also was thinking at that point she was living at home. What has she got to lose? You know, if it doesn't work, it's not like she, she has mortgage payments or all the other things that people have to worry about. And quite honestly, uh, when I look at Brooke, she's she's got a little bit of, a, of her dad in her because I'm not sure she knows 
the 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 point of saying you know what i can't i can't do no more but she is a, she's a go-getter and i'm very proud of her i was her. gonna say i've i've run into her a, a lot more in the last year and she's always on go oh, she has just got open. a fire about her that she really that is definitely say is uh, a lot like you and then brandon oh. is racing uh in the west series mm-hmm. uh, yeah. for bill mcnally we got yeah. to hang out some at the napa thing back at the beginning of the year yeah so. back in las vegas no i'm i'm, I'm really proud of 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 what brandon has has accomplished you know we we worked non-stop trying to grow his career i'm actually going to atlanta tomorrow to meet with some people about some things maybe for his future uh it's a very vertical mountain it it may be aside from getting in the sprint cup getting into the crew chief the broadcasting trying to help grow his career that may be the most vertical mountain that i've tried to climb and you know when i talk about brandon or when i promote brandon or try to move his career, I work very hard to leave my dad hat off because now we're at a point where there's too much money, there's too much everything involved just to want to see it because he's my son. Maybe when we were running Bandoleros and Allison Legacy, I wore my dad hat a little more often. But the biggest thing I'm I'm proud of Brandon is, is how he handles himself outside the race car. I don't know where the driving ability came from. I can promise you it didn't come from me. <laughs> I'm the guy on the interstate in the left lane with my blinker on, <laughs> probably 10 miles per hour slower than everybody else. But but hopefully what I have passed on to him is is the way he carries himself outside the, the race car. You know, our sport has changed so much. I always use Richard Childress as an example. When I was at Richard Childress Racing, I can remember Kevin Harvick coming along. And he was trying to run Kevin in the Nationwide Series. And I remember Richard going to his sales and marketing group saying, I want to run this kid. Y'all find me a sponsor to run him. Well, spin it ahead now, 15 years later, Richard walks into his sales and marketing team and says, Find me a kid that's got money, <laughs> and yep. we'll see if he can drive a race car. So, But to be affiliated with Napa, which you have a strong affiliation yes. with, and, and Bill McAnally Racing, and they have knocked all over the door of winning races. They finished second the last two weeks, and they've got three races to go. He's third in the points. The championship's going to be a bit of a stretch, but like I told him, just take it one week at a time, and the points will fall where they fall. Yep, he's been working at this for, for quite some time, so it's great to see him have some success with it. And then Kendall, what's Kendall up to? It's hard to believe. she uh, <laughs> She's a junior in high school, oh, which I know you can relate I to. I remember to when your, she was born. <laughs> oh, tell me. In fact, she was born. Uh, I was working with your dad. We were at Richmond. And I went to Richmond. Times have changed because <laughs> we used to go to the racetrack with our wives pregnant and just hoped that the baby wasn't born while we were gone. But if it was, it was. Yeah, now because I see you, people coming back home or not even going to race. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Wait get them a, a substitute driver, <laughs> get them a substitute so, crew chief. Yeah, times have changed. But I remember flying, your dad flew me home on his plane, uh, and, and Kendall was born around 12 noon that Saturday. And by one fifteen, I was back in Richmond <laughs> for the race that night. So, yeah. But she's a junior in high school, and, and she's quite the little tennis player. Uh, she's undefeated this year for her school tennis team. She went undefeated last year, and it kind of breaks my heart because I think beyond high school, she does not want to pursue tennis because she wants to pursue the medical field. And I think she feels like that what you have to do education-wise to pursue the medical field is overwhelming enough without adding things like tennis in college right. because obviously a sport in college is a, is a huge demand on your yeah. time. 
She might just need that as a stress reliever. Well, I was kind of hoping maybe a little bit of a scholarship <laughs> yeah, tip with, this, with was, this tennis. So. I was actually thinking that, too, as you were telling the story. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? So what do you and Linda look forward to doing for fun these days when you your know, schedule allows? Yeah, you know, as you well know, being in this sport your entire life, you know, the, the only time that you can get away and do anything um, are doing the, the, the off-season, the off-season that doesn't exist, you right. know. But that's one good thing about the broadcasting uh, that has been for the better because when I was a crew chief, the months of November, December, January were really our busiest months. We just wasn't traveling. But we do get some downtime I, from Thanksgiving to New Year's, other than maybe a few conference calls, maybe one meeting around the banquet. I do try to shut it down, and we try to always go somewhere. Like last year, uh, Linda and I and the girls, we went to Aruba, and we were there for Christmas. Oh, cool. And Brandon didn't go. He's engaged, so he was down <laughs> with his, his uh, future in-laws in, down in Pensacola. So we try to take a trip somewhere nice every year. And I'm not sure. I saw her on a computer the other day working away, so she's brewing up something. I guess we're going to go one. somewhere this, <laughs> this off season. Do you guys have any hobbies that you like to do? You, you know, I, I don't. Um, uh, racing, Just hardcore racing. Ra racing, you know, <laughs> even still as a broadcaster, I, you know, I won't go to Richmond this weekend, but Friday I'll be in my office at home, I'm sure, watching every practice and every qualifying show from Richmond because that's going to help in my preparation for, for the, the race day show break. on Saturday. I, I don't fish. I don't hunt. I, I like to golf. I'm not very good. <laughs> uh, I just finally a few months ago realized why I'd go play these golf tournaments and I'd turn in this really high score and they wouldn't give me the trophy. Well, I found out golf was actually trying to get the lowest score. <laughs> so now that I've got that figured out, maybe I'll do a little better at my no, golf game. I think I'd be good at golf either. I never liked golf. That's probably where you and Dad actually had something in common because I don't think he was a big golfer either. No, I, you, you know, <laughs> the only thing your dad in, in, enjoyed outside of racing, of course, was, was being on his land, as you yes. well know. Yes. I'd go down there, he'd, he'd call me and say, what time are you leaving the shop? And uh, he'd say, well, if you're going to leave early, come by here. And he'd, he'd get in that pickup truck, and we'd drive off through the woods there, and he'd knock in the rearview mirrors off both doors and never checking up. And I have never met anybody in my life that had eyesight better than your dad he'd say he'd stop that truck he'd say look at that deer over there and it's like where, where? <laughs> he'd say take these binoculars and i'd have to take the binoculars and i could just barely see a little bit of a deer and here he'd he'd seen yep. him just with his naked eye so yep. uh yeah you know linda and i do enjoy spending time together uh, I'm, uh they'll probably pull my man card for telling uh -oh. you this monday night is our date night and our date night on monday night is a bottle of wine and either watching The Bachelor, <laughs> The Bachelorette, The Bachelor in Paradise, or Dancing with the Stars, depending on what time of the year it is. So, yeah, there Sounds goes like my, a good date There night. goes my man card. So No, that's a good man card because that's supporting your wife. I'm sure, you know, she likes to watch those things. That's well, I'd thing. watch her watch those things, and I'd, she'd say, you want to watch this? I'm not watching right. that mess. And then, I don't know, I sat down one time, it's like, this is really Some pretty interesting. TV so, drama. <laughs> yeah, lots of drama there. Yeah, exactly. So, Amanda, it's back to school time. And mm -hmm. um, I was looking on Charlie's soap Facebook page, caught this on there about kids going off to college. And, and as I look back on my own college career, I'm pretty sure that my parents forgot to send me with laundry detergent, too. Oh, yeah. I remember you had to get the quarters. Yeah. And, yeah, go to <laughs> the room. Not something that you think of. Yeah. So, you know, Charlie Soap's a great product to send uh, with your kids off to college. They're going to be doing their own laundry. 
Soap's a good, safe, non-toxic product. I think uh, every kid at college should have some Charlie Soap. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a less chance of ruining your clothing, too. I couldn't imagine yeah. if my parents <laughs> sent me with bleach, and I'd be like, okay, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to use yeah, this on, exactly. but at least with Charlie's Soap, you'll be able to know that you know the clothes are getting clean, and you really don't need that bleach. They have their right. own bleach uh oxygen booster yeah, that you can buy do. but just at least stick to the basic yeah <laughs> <laughs> college kids stick to the basic you're doing your laundry for the first time just just take it easy take the basic laundry detergent from trolley soap and throw you a little scoop in there and you'll be in good shape <laughs> you can check those products out at trolleysoap.com you can buy direct from their store and you can also check out their store locator to find a store near you that sells trolley soap all right it's time for ask kelly remember that you can submit your questions on my twitter handle earnhardt kelly using the hashtag ask kelly and you can also submit your questions by my Facebook page, Kelly K. Earnhardt. First question is from Christy Straub on Facebook. What is your biggest aspiration and who is your biggest inspiration? I think these probably go hand in hand for me. I guess my biggest aspiration is just to raise three well-rounded, responsible kids in today's world. And I say that I think it's one and the same because my inspiration is my kids. You know, I think when you become a mom, you know, you kind of live your life for your kids and, and trying to, to, to make the best for them and provide the best for them and give them the direction and all those good things. So um, I would say my kids are my aspiration and my inspiration um, and just trying to to learn from them and, and parent them as best I can to for them to aspire into the best people that they can be. Selena Hull on Facebook uh, wants to know, how do you prepare Carson for racing in the heat? She's got a 12-year-old son who races go-karts in Georgia, and we all know it's hot down there. <laughs> and she wanted to know, is there, is there a good way to prepare him for hydration and things that you need to worry about in heat? Yeah, good question. You know, I just say, you know, like probably like everybody else is um, to hydrate and to, you know, keep the liquids in them several days prior to the racing. Um, the one thing that I've learned about preparing Carson for anything is that she doesn't listen to her mama. So, uh, Selena, try to find someone else to tell your son what to do for the heat. <laughs> That's probably lesson number one. <laughs> Us parents don't know anything. <laughs> All right, we have one last question, and it is also from Facebook. It's from Tammy Mitchell. Are there any females working in the junior motorsports shop? At this time, no. I don't think we have any uh, females out on the floor in the shop. Now, we have. We uh, we had a, a shock specialist here several years. I think she started sometime back in, like, 2006 range and worked here till up till a couple years ago. And we did have a female intern in our engineering program for a summer, you know, I know there's some females out there that uh, work on the NASCAR team. Seen a couple of them on TV this past weekend, mm -hmm. but we don't currently have any. Well, I really appreciate you joining me. It's been fun. It, and, it has um, been fun. I got a couple final thoughts for you. I always have final thoughts for my guests. So, uh, sweet or salty? No question, sweet. Sweets. You're a big sweet eater. You like the beach or mountains? Oh, beach. No question. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Dogs. <laughs> Football or baseball? Football. Roll Tide. <laughs> I think I've, I've been hearing you say that lately. Yes. <laughs> if I do have a second love, <laughs> it's definitely college football, mainly the University of Alabama. Sports car or truck? Truck. Not a sports car guy. Not a not a car guy, as hard just as it is to really? believe. No, I just uh, race cars. That's, That's and Other than that, just give me an old pickup truck. I'll know the question. I'll know the answer here, beer or wine. Wine. <laughs> Red wine, preferably. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. All right. Well, thank you for joining us this week on Fast Lane Family, presented by Charlie Soap. Hope you have enjoyed the show and that you'll listen again next week. Thanks for listening to Dirty Mo' Radio. 
I appreciate everyone tuning in to Fast Lane Family presented by Charlie Soap today. Now go visit charliesoap.com and check out their unbelievable line of cleaning products. Tackle some of your toughest cleaning projects and help support this wonderful sponsor of Dirty Mo Radio. Again, that's charliesoap.com.